All right, so we're doing another open study. If you want to find this on Sermon Audio later, this in the long list of open studies we've done, this will be open study number 86. And I've got three excellent questions to tackle tonight. I think for sure I'll be able to cover two of them. And uh, just depending on how long that takes, um, may, we may have time for a third one tonight. Uh, the first question has to do with a uh, pair of events in the book of Exodus, chapter 33, if you want to head that direction. This is an exchange. Uh, both of these events are an exchange, an interaction, I should say, between the Lord and Moses. And there is a similar description that's used in their interaction, but it's used in two different ways that caused the person reading it to have a question about it. So the question was, can you explain the apparent contradiction in these two interactions between the Lord and Moses in Exodus 33, verses 11 and 20, specifically in relationship to the phrase face-to-face -face or the face of the Lord? And um, the answer to that question is, yes, I can explain it. All right, so let's move on to the next one. Now I... I'm just joking, of course. I'll try to explain it for your sake as well as for theirs. Uh, let's read the section, though. It's a really wonderful section. This is um, one of my favorite chapters in the story of the Exodus, chapter 33. And we're picking up in verse 7. And the setting is the uh, children of Israel are, of course, uh, this is shortly after having come to Mount Sinai, having uh, Moses go up to the mountain, meet the Lord there, receive in the 40 days and 40 nights in the Lord's presence. He received the, the Ten Commandments from the Lord. He received the, the plans for the construction of the tabernacle, brought them down to the people. All of that has just happened. <clears throat> and now this particular portion is referring to a tent this is uh, before they've completed the, the construction of the tabernacle, but this is a second tent that was used in a specific way for the interaction between the Lord and Moses in their wilderness journey. It was called the tent of meeting. I'm going to start reading in verse 7, and I'm going to read all the way through to verse 20 so that we can get both of these key verses that they were asking about. Uh, verse 11 and verse 20 contain the information that the person was asking about. So Exodus 33, 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each one or each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud, and that's of course the same pillar of cloud that led them through the wilderness, the, um, the, the covering that the Lord designed uh, to cover his own presence as the angel of the Lord who was actually the Lord, remember from our study through the, um, the Christophanies, the Old Testament appearances of Christ. This was the Lord Jesus himself, pre-incarnate, um, in the pillar of fire and cloud that led them through the wilderness. So when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. And that's our key phrase. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people 
but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, this is now the Lord's response, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, this is now Moses answering the Lord. He said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face. This is our second portion. You cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Now let me read on a little just to the end of the chapter here. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you, shall not, and, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So the apparent contradiction that the person was asking about is in verses 11 and 20. Let me just reread those two verses now. <clears throat> Verse 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And then in verse 20, but, and this is the Lord speaking, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. What they were wondering about, what they're, what they're questioning is the apparent contradiction of in one passage, the relationship between Moses and the Lord being described as a face-to-face relationship. <clears throat> but in the other passage, the Lord himself says to Moses, regarding Moses, I won't let you see my face. So how could it be a face-to-face relationship if Moses is not actually ever allowed nor any of the other people of Israel, by the way, nor anyone else on the face of the earth. No one is allowed to actually see the face of the Lord. So uh, the answer to this apparent contradiction is just understanding how the term face is used in the same passage. It's in the same event, same context, but it's used in two completely different ways. The first in verse 11, is describing the nature of or the kind of relationship that Moses enjoyed with the Lord because of the Lord's special purpose in Moses' life, the special calling that was upon his life. Moses was, of course, called by the Lord, not just to be one of the covenant people of Israel, but he was called even out of Israel for an, an even more special purpose of being the primary prophet of the Lord during his moment on earth, during his lifetime. And not just the primary prophet, which is the the voice of the Lord speaking the words of the Lord as the Lord revealed them to him to the people of God, but also he was called to be the deliverer of God's people. Not to the fullest extent that Jesus is in the new covenant, our deliverer, he didn't, Moses didn't literally save all of Israel from their sins, but he certainly was used by the Lord to deliver them <clears throat> from their bondage to their slavery to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians and to set them free and to bring them out as a free people into the wilderness journey. And eventually under the leadership of Joshua in that later transition, they would cross into the promised land and settle there as a free people. So face-to-face in verse 11, reading it once more, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face-to-face as a man speaks to his friend. It's not technically describing 
the nature of what's going on in that moment of interaction between the Lord and Moses. Because what was it that Moses was actually interacting with in this interaction with the Lord? I want to remind you that verse 9 describes for us what Moses saw, literally, physically, and what he was interacting with in a literal and physical way. Let's reread verse 9. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And then verse 10 tells us what all the people saw, but Moses is included in the category of all the people, so this is what also Moses saw. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. So what did Moses actually see at the, at the entrance to the tent of meeting when he was looking toward the presence of the Lord? What did he literally, physically actually see? He saw a cloud, a pillar of cloud. It was a special cloud. It was a glorious cloud. It was an awesome cloud. It was unique because it was the covering like clothing in a sense of the actual glorified presence of the Lord appearing in a Christophany in that moment of history, Old Covenant history. But he didn't see the Lord emerge from the cloud and show him his literal form. He saw the cloud. But verse 11 is careful to describe the kind of relationship that they enjoyed which was described as a face-to-face relationship. So the Lord saw the face of Moses, but Moses didn't literally see the face of the Lord. So is this a bad description of the relationship? And the answer is no. It's a wonderful description of the relationship. It's an accurate and perfect description of the relationship. It's just not a physical description of the relationship. It's describing the kind of, the level of, the the level of intimacy in that relationship. One of the things that I think is helpful to keep in mind is the way people typically approached majestic persons in the ancient world of this Old Testament setting. Whether it was approaching a king, um, and certainly the Lord would qualify as a king in in this sense, or whether it was approaching a god like even a a false god, an idolatrous god, people would generally in the ancient world approach majestic personages, whether a king or a god, in a specific kind of way. And we see this even being portrayed in modern day movies to some extent, or TV shows of ancient times. It's just not common in our culture, in our society any longer. How would someone generally go to approach in order to speak to such a majestic personage as a king or a god. How they would approach is like this. They would approach with their face bowed to the earth. They would approach with their head down and they would speak to the person in front of them, the majestic person in front of them, but they wouldn't speak in a face-to-face way. They would speak with their face pointed down to the earth. Why would they do that? What was the point of doing? That was a common way of approaching kings in the ancient world. It was, yes, an expression of honor, but it was essentially to symbolize this person that I'm approaching is so much greater than I am. It's a a physical way to demonstrate humility in the relationship and a recognition that we're not on the same level. There's a, there's a, a, a great gap between this person and me. And I don't dare lift my face and look at them eye to eye. And if someone were to dare to do that without being granted that specific permission by that majestic personage, they were running the risk of the judgment of that majestic person, the judgment of the king or the judgment of the God that they were approaching. So what is happening here when the Lord is describing the kind of relationship that Moses experienced with the Lord 
is that the Lord, even though we don't want to go too far and say Moses was the equal of God, nevertheless, the Lord called Moses into such a relationship with him that they spoke in a face-to-face kind of way. And also in verse 11, not just the face-to-face imagery, but a second description is added in verse 11 to help us to understand that what's being described here is not technical information about the nature of God's face. What's being described here is the nature of the relationship. So look at verse 11 one more time. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Not as a, not as a, a servant speaks to a king, but as a man speaks to his friend. And of course, friendship relationships are relationships of equality. They are face-to-face. They're relationships of closeness and intimacy and open communication between the two of them. So yes, when Moses went up on the mountaintop and he spent that 40 days and 40 nights in the direct presence of the Lord, yes, the Lord spoke to Moses, but Moses also had the availability and the opportunity by God's gracious design to speak to the Lord. So there was this exchange, this open communication between them. And even in this portion that we read, in, in starting in verse 12, as Moses begins to intercede and talk to the Lord about his relationship with Israel, not just about his relationship with Moses, you see this openness in, in the heart of Moses to speak to the Lord what's on his heart without holding anything back out of fear that the Lord is going to react in some way of judgment toward him. So the first use of face in referring to this face-to-face relationship is all about describing the relationship between Moses and the Lord. Now the second occurrence, oh, and by the way, let me give you, let me give you three other examples. I, I won't take us to these passages. I'll just name the examples and I'll give you the addresses if you want to look these up in your own time. I thought of three other examples in the Old Testament where others besides Moses enjoyed this same quality or kind of relationship with the Lord. And I don't think these are the only three, but these are three good um, parallel examples. The first one I thought of was Enoch, back toward the beginning of world history. This is found in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, where it simply describes Enoch's relationship with the Lord as one in which he walked with God and he was not, meaning his life in this world came to an end, but it came to an end not by him dying a natural death, but he was not because it says the Lord took him. So there's this closeness of relationship as a, in a, in a sense, they're walking together on a pathway like friends and the Lord takes him. A second one I thought of is Abraham in chapter 18 of Genesis verses 17 through 33, where the Lord interacts with Abraham like a friend. And he even says to the angels that are with him, because the Lord appeared to Abraham along with two angels whom he later sent to Sodom and Gomorrah to evaluate their spiritual and moral condition. And as he sends the angels, he says to them, will I withhold from Abraham what I am about to do in relationship to these cities that I'm evaluating. And then from that point, we see the Lord and Abraham on the hilltop overlooking the valley in which Sodom and Gomorrah were established. And the Lord and Abraham are having a conversation and a discussion about the disposition of those cities in relationship to God's judgment. And then do you remember what happens in that interaction between the Lord and Abraham? It's not just the Lord saying to Abraham, okay, I'm going to judge these cities. But Abraham speaks back to the Lord, not in a rude way, but he speaks back to him in a way of starting a negotiation. A negotiation like equals, even though Abraham recognizes it's ultimately in the Lord's hands what is going to be done to these cities. But he's given the privilege of appealing to the Lord and negotiating with the Lord over how what standard the Lord will apply in the judgment upon those cities. And the Lord listens to Abraham and actually changes his approach to judging the cities based upon the input of Abraham. And then the third one that I thought of was (coughs) from the life of King David 
in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18. It's a small little detail, easily overlooked, but it's unique in all of the interactions with the Lord in the Old Covenant in which David entered the tent of the house of the Lord, known as the tabernacle, in the very presence of the Lord. And it says in that passage that he sat there in the presence of the Lord. What's particularly unusual about that is you've heard me mention before, you might not remember, but in all of the service to the Lord that's done in the Old Testament tabernacle and later the Old Testament temple, uh, what was the posture of all of the Levitical priests that served in the tabernacle and the temple, including the high priest himself? They never once, through all of their years of service, were allowed to ever sit down in the house of the Lord. There was only one seat in the house of the Lord. That seat was in the innermost room and it was known as the Ark of the Covenant. And only one was allowed to sit on that seat and that was the presence of the Lord himself because that seat represented on earth the throne of God in heaven. But interestingly, King David uniquely among all of the Israelites, even the Levites weren't allowed this. Even the high priests of the Levites weren't allowed this. King David entered the tabernacle and sat down in the presence of the Lord and then had a conversation with the Lord. And so he is interacting with him on, a, on the footing of equality. Not that David is as great as the Lord by any means, but the Lord is graciously allowing him that level of relationship and intimacy. So it's, I see it as very similar to what's being described between the Lord and Moses. All right, so now in verse 20, we have the second occurrence of face, and here referring to the face of the Lord. Let me reread verse 20. The Lord says to Moses, and, and this is, by the way, in response to a prayer, a cry of the heart of Moses, in which he says, uh, in verse 13, Moses prays to the Lord, now therefore, if I have found favor, favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. And then in verse um, eight, uh, 18, Moses prays a second time and says to the Lord, please show me your glory. And in response to that, in verse 20, the Lord says, <coughs> but he's basically telling him, I'm going, to, I'm going to show you my glory, but you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Now, is the Lord describing in this reference to his face, is he describing now that something has changed since verse 11? Is he describing that the relationship with Moses has somehow <coughs> deteriorated? That the relationship has some, somehow gone sour? And whereas in verse 11, they had a relationship that was face-to-face, -face, now in verse 20, the Lord is saying to Moses, okay, that's all changed. You no longer qualify to have a face-to-face -face relationship with me. The answer to that is no. Nothing has changed in a negative sense from verse 11 to verse 20 between the Lord and Moses. If anything... The relationship is deepening. It's, it's growing stronger and more intimate, not less. So his reference to his face now is not dealing with a description of their relationship. It's dealing now with a more physical reality about the revelation of God to Moses of his glory and the literal physical capacity to experience the fullness of that revelation without being harmed. Now, why would the Lord say, and this is obviously a true statement because the Lord is the one making it, why would he say, you cannot see my face for man, and when he says man here, he's not just talking about males, he's talking about all human beings. No human being, and he, he's describing human beings in their current state, not in a future state of saved and glorified believers, but in their present state, in this natural, fallen, physically sin-affected world, in that state, mankind, 
cannot see my face and live. Or we could say it this way, cannot see my face and survive the experience. So what is it about seeing the face of the Lord that is a deadly encounter for any human being that's given that experience while they exist in a natural, physically sin-affected, fallen human body? The idea is the glory of God is so immensely glorious that our natural bodies don't have the capacity to take it all in. It would be like, um, the best example I could possibly give, I think, would be, um, you know how they warn people, and for good reason, don't ever stare directly at the sun in the sky? What happens if you stare directly at the sun in the sky for more than just a glance? The potential is there for blindness, either partial or complete blindness, depending upon how bright the sun is as you're staring at it. Because, you know, have you ever been down to the beach at, at sunset? You can stare at the sun when it's right above the horizon. Why? Why can you stare at it then, but not when it's at its zenith at, at noon? Because the atmosphere is filtering the glorious rays of the sun. So you're not seeing the fullness of the sun's glory. You're seeing a, in a sense, a, a toned down expression of God's, excuse me, the sun's glory. And so when it's the fullness of day, it's noon and the sun is at its zenith and you look up at it and you stare directly at it without any sunglasses on or without any proper filters, the, the danger exists that your physical eyes are not able to look at that bright of a light without being adversely affected by that light. Now, which is more glorious, do you imagine? The sun in its zenith or the fullness of God's glory in, in Revelation? Fullness the fullness of God's glory, because God is the one who created the sun and not just one sun, but there are literally trillions of similar suns in the known universe. God created all of them. He maintains all of them. He is more powerful than all of them. And they are just pale reflections of his glory. I mean, the, the, the book of Psalms in Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God and, and they do so by, by emphasizing that look at how glorious the heavens are and yet the one who made them must be even more glorious than these, than the stars, which are each and every star is its sun in its own right. So the idea here is God is saying to Moses, not, hey, our relationship has changed, therefore we don't have a face-to-face -face relationship. What he's saying is, <clears throat> look, you've asked for something. It's a good, it's a good request, but you're, you've asked for something that I can't answer fully, because if I answered it fully, fully, it would obliterate your physical body. And then, then what would happen? You know, obviously it wouldn't be to Moses' benefit to see the fullness of God's glory. So what does the Lord do for him? And I love this account. The Lord accommodates the, the request of Moses, but also keeps in mind the consideration of the, 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 ability that Moses has, the capacity that Moses has to only take in a, a degree of the glory, the revealed glory of God, not the fullness. Now, if you ask me what percentage of God's glory did, did the Lord actually reveal to Moses, I don't know what the percentage was, but I guarantee it was somewhat less than 100%. So what he does, starting in verse 21, <coughs> the Lord says, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. Why a cleft of the rock? Yeah, it's a shelter from too much radiant glory, being exposed to too much radiant glory. He's, he's putting him in like a, in a safe, a physically uh, shielded zone, so to speak. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and that's not enough. The cleft of the rock by itself can't possibly shield him even from the smaller degree of God's glory 
that God intends to reveal to him. So in addition to the cleft of the rock safe place, the Lord says, I'm also going to do this. I will cover you with my hand. Why? What, what is he doing? Covering him with his hand. He, he's basically saying, you know, the hand of the Lord being a great hand. You're in the shelter of the rock. So any of the, the rays of my glory bouncing around, the, the shelter of the rocks are going to cover you from some of that. But my hand will cover you from the rest so that the only glory you experience will be glory filtered through my covering hand. Now, we don't want to get into technicalities about, are we talking about a literal hand here? What's the nature of the hand? I just want you to understand that the Lord is accommodating the capacity of Moses to take in the glory of God, and he's shielding him from too much glory that would be harmful. He's going to give him as much glory as he can handle, but not any more than he can handle. So I'll cover you with my hand until what? I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand. Are you in danger now? Well, not exactly because he's passed by. And so now you won't see my face because he's already passed by. You will see what? You'll see my back. Literally, what he says is you will see behind me. He doesn't, he's not saying you'll see my rear end. He's saying, you will see behind me. What does that mean? Well, the best term I could come up with to describe what Moses actually saw was not the direct glory of God, but what we could call the afterglow. Have you ever experienced the afterglow of a light? Meaning you see the light and close your eyes. You can, you can even see it with your eyes closed. It's the, it's the afterglow. It's not the direct light, but there's the experience of, of what the light has left behind of itself, so to speak. And so the Lord is going to shield him, but fully reveal to him as much as he has the capacity to take in without being harmed or damaged by that, relate, uh, that uh, revelation. So again, this is a, a, this is a good example of, of applying the principle of what theologians call hermeneutics to our reading of the Bible. Hermeneutics just simply means the, the, uh, the guidelines or the rules that should be applied to properly read and interpret and understand what's being written. So you have the face of the Lord being mentioned twice in one circumstance but it's being used in two different ways, two different contexts, one having to do with a description of the nature of the relationship, the other having to do with the nature of the revelation, the direct revelation um, of God's glory. Or in this case, it was an indirect revelation, Moses seeing the afterglow of God's glory. All right. Um, so I ran a little bit long on that one. I think we'll do two tonight rather than three. Okay, so this one is a theological issue, and it's comparing two New Testament passages, one in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, and one in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, and it's similar in that it's the same word being used in these two verses, like the same word face was used in the two different events in Exodus 33. Now, the question has to do with faith and how faith is used. Is it used in the same way? Is it used in different ways? So in 1 Timothy, this is the question. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, is the faith that Paul refers to the same as through faith in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8? And if so, how can anyone really depart from the faith, and we'll, we'll go to 1 Timothy 4.1 to find out why they're asking that question. How can anyone really depart from the faith if we are once saved, always saved? I understand we all fail in sin, but to depart from the faith seems to imply losing <coughs> your salvation. <coughs> all right, so let's, let's go to those two passages and read them. Let's read the Ephesians passage first. Ephesians 
chapter 2, verse 8. This is one of those sections in Paul's letters that um, where Paul, in a, in a short group of verses, effectively manages to summarize the entire story of our salvation in just a handful of verses. And um, starting in verse 1, I won't read the whole section, but starting in verse 1, he's briefly describing the spiritual condition that we all experienced and we all lived in before we were saved. And then uh, toward the end of this section, he describes what God did to actually save us and how he went about saving us. So the question he asked had to do with verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8. Very famous verse, one that you should be well familiar with. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. All right, so when he says, when Paul says, this is not your own doing, what is is not your own doing? For by grace you have been saved. Your salvation is not your own doing. It's It's the work of God. It's the doing of God. We didn't save ourselves. But we were involved in our experience of salvation. So what was our involvement point? So in anyone being truly saved, being truly born again, truly delivered by the Lord to a new life in Christ, there are two involvements, the Lord's involvement and our involvement. The first is the most important one by far. The second, though, is an essential part, in a sense, of the experience of salvation. So the Lord's part is described in verse 8 as grace. And at the end of verse 8, Paul comes back to that to re-emphasize it, to make sure that we don't miss the emphasis when he uses the description of it being the gift of God. So the gift of God is the grace of God and the grace of God is the gift of God. And the idea being that We didn't save ourselves. We didn't start the process of salvation. We didn't carry it forward and we didn't complete it. It was entirely a result of God's gracious intervention in our heart, in our soul, causing us to do what? According to verse eight, causing us to respond to his grace. Without his grace, there would have been no response on our part. But when his saving grace is active in a human soul, it results in, it causes a response on the part of that human being. And what response is caused in verse 8? Faith, what we call saving faith. So there's saving grace and saving faith, but it's super important, as Paul is describing it, and the rest of the Bible testifies to it. It's super important that we keep it in the right order, meaning that saving faith cannot occur before or apart from saving grace. It's saving grace that causes saving faith, not the other way around. So it's not that one day I just was lost and and spiritually dead and disconnected from God and living my own life, and I just, just decided on a whim, you know what, I think I'm going to become a Christian. And I'm, going to, I'm going to believe in God. I'm going to believe in Christ. I'm going to believe in the cross. I'm going to believe in the resurrection. And when I chose to, to cross that line and begin to believe those things, then God's grace went into work in my soul and I was actually saved. Uh, there are some theological aberrations in church history where some try to flip it that order in that way and they completely miss the point that Paul is emphasizing here. It's that I was going my own way, lost in darkness, spiritually dead as he describes all the way back in, in verse one. Um, I, was, I, was, um, I was fully lost and the Lord, just like he did with the 
with uh, Saul of Tarsus, who later becomes the Apostle Paul, intervening, interrupting the direction of his life on the road to Damascus, revealing himself to Paul by his gracious interruption and intervention and creating in Paul's heart the new ability to believe the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished for him in the work of salvation. So here, faith is functioning as uh, what? It's functioning as, in the, in the sentence structure, it's functioning as a verb. It's functioning as something you and I do, but it's, a, it's something we do in our hearts in response to the gracious gift of God, the saving grace of God that creates this newfound ability to believe the truth of the gospel in a saving way. But the faith that's described here is our response of actually believing it, an action that occurs in our soul, in our heart, and in our mind at that point of salvation. All right, now let's go from Ephesians 2 to the second passage they were asking about. And I should say, as we go to 1 Timothy chapter 4, I should say that uh, everyone who is truly saved, and there are no exceptions to this in all of human history, everyone who is truly saved is saved in the way that Ephesians 2.8 describes. And everyone who is truly saved will remain truly saved because of that same gracious influence of God's saving grace in our hearts. Now we've studied before the idea of, they mentioned the, 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 the traditional phrase, once saved, always saved. Uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the reformers that I follow theologically uh, chose a different way to describe this. They, they described it, rather than using the catchphrase, once saved, always saved, they describe it as the, the concept of the perseverance of the saints. And the idea there is, if you truly are born again, if you truly belong to the Lord, you will persevere in your response of saving faith to the truth of the gospel that God has graciously revealed to you. He will continue to cause your heart to cling to that truth to the very end of your life in this world. Um, there are many passages, and we've done entire studies on this before, about the concept of whether one can lose their salvation. I don't believe it is possible for a truly saved person to, in a sense, lose their salvation. I don't want to turn this study into that study, but just mentioning that before we go into the First Timothy passage. So First Timothy chapter 4, now we're looking at, we're looking at verse 1. And it'll help if I was in 1 Timothy rather than 2nd. Hold on. All right. This is a portion in which Paul is issuing a warning to the church in Ephesus, the Ephesian church, uh, through a young pastor who Paul is writing to, and that is Timothy. He's left Timothy behind in the city of Ephesus, and he's left him with responsibility to shepherd the church in Ephesus. But Paul sees by the grace of God, and it's a, it's a prophetic foresight. He sees a danger that's coming down the road to this church and to the welfare of the true believers in the church. So he says this in uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says, so the Spirit of God is revealing this to Paul. It's not just his opinion. He's not guessing about the future. The Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving, um, by those who believe and know the truth. All right, so Paul is warning about a, an imminent danger to the church that's he's describing as in later times, and we can, I don't want to veer off into which later times he's specifically referring to, but the principle that they're asking about 
applies whether it's in the later times or the earlier times or the middle times. And that is, he's wondering, is it possible to depart from the faith if a person truly has had saving faith like Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 describes? And the answer to that question is yes and no, depending upon how, you know, what you're emphasizing. The, the yes part is, is it possible to depart from the faith? The answer is clearly yes, because look at verse 1 again. Some, he doesn't say might, he says some will depart from the faith. So is it possible to depart from the faith? Absolutely it's possible to depart from the faith. It's a danger that should be made clear to the church. <clears throat> but the question that follows that is, are those who are departing from the faith people that were once truly saved, but now as they're departing from the faith, they're no longer saved. So in that sense, they have lost their salvation. And the answer to that is no. He's using faith here in a different way than Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 was used. In Ephesians 2, 8, I made the emphasis that faith was being used as a verb, an action, a responsive action of believing in the heart in response to the, the gracious and powerful saving grace of God at work in the heart of a person that God intends to save. That's a verb. It's faith in action, which is our responsive part of the experience of salvation. Here, faith is used not as a verb, but as a what? As a noun, which simply means that he's talking about faith as a body of information that is confessed publicly and followed and adhered to by those who truly know the Lord. But does that mean that it is impossible for someone that's never actually been saved to adhere to the faith. The faith here is defined, and I'll define it this way, it's simply the, the doctrinal information that we call the essentials of the Christian faith, the essence of the gospel, things like who Jesus actually is, his true identity, what his true nature is, what happened when he entered into this world in his incarnation, what he accomplished in his life in this world in terms of living consistently and perfectly in righteous obedience to the standards of God, what happened when he willingly sacrificed himself on the cross for our sake, and then what happened when he rose again from the dead three days later. Those are the, it, taken together as a body of doctrinal information. Those are what we call the doctrines of the faith. Those are, that's the body of information that distinguishes true believers from those that are not believers. It distinguishes those that are actually Christians from those that are not Christians. It distinguishes those who are truly saved from those who are not truly saved. It is not possible to be truly saved without believing that body of information. Now, does that mean at the moment of your salvation, you have to have perfect and mature understanding of all the nuances and details of that information? No, but it does mean that your heart embraces the essential elements, that Jesus is God the Son, and he died on the cross for our sins because his, and his, his sacrifice was a powerful and saving sacrifice because he had lived a perfect and sinless life. And then he rose again from the dead in order to demonstrate by God's power that God had accepted his sacrifice on our behalf as a saving sacrifice. And so that, that body of information is something that true believers all ascribe to, adhere to, remain committed to. But I want to ask you, is it possible for someone that has never truly been born again 
to walk in the doors of a church, to hear all of that information declared and described and even explained, and to say in their mind, yes, that is true. I accept the truth of those statements. And I even believe that they are true. But to hold that in a non-saving way, it absolutely is possible. And it happens in churches all over the world throughout all of church history. Now, I'm not saying that it happens to the majority of people that attend church. I don't know what the percentages are, but it is absolutely possible for someone to believe the truth of the essential elements of the gospel without believing them in a saving way. So what happens to that kind of person is at some point, if they say, all right, I did believe these as true, but I no longer do believe them as true, and they leave their attendance of the church, they leave their consideration and commitment to those principles, what can we say about them other than they have departed from the faith? Does that mean they've lost their salvation? The answer is no, it means they never were truly saved. But they're departing from the body of information. It's not departing from a truly saving faith in their heart, it's departing from an external adherence and acknowledgement of the truth of those things. And there are many different reasons why someone might attend church for a while and, and even say, yes, I believe the truth of these things for a while and then later leave. There are many different reasons that that's happened. We've had many of those experiences in, in the, uh, the folks that have attended this church over the 35 years of this church being in existence. <clears throat> but that kind of a person is not departing from their heart being saved. They're departing from their adherence to that body of information. All right, uh, so that brings us to the end of our study the end of these two questions, and Lord willing, um, I'll have another open study, but I don't think I'll do it next week. I'm going to get right into next Thursday night, Lord willing, the, uh, the study on Christ in the Old Testament. We'll save the one that I didn't answer tonight for uh, the next time uh, we have a break in the rotation. God bless you.